This is a classic because class commentary, unfortunately, is still deeply relevant. This is a classic because it's a frothy, fun take on the aristocracy. This is a classic because everyone loves a voice of reason in the middle of complete chaos. This is a classic for those of you who watched the Meghan and Harry documentary on Netflix and wish it was a Moliere-esque comedy. This is our history. This is our legacy. Hello, and welcome to This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon theater podcast. We're your hosts. Sky Pagan, curator for Expand the Canon and member of Hedgepig Ensemble. And me, Emily Lyon, a curator and artistic director of Hedgepig Ensemble. Expand the Canon is a program of Hedgepig Ensemble, a Brooklyn-based company that reimagines the classics, creating a legacy of storytelling with gender equity at its core. And today we are diving into The Mess Alliance by Louise Gottsched. Now, we'll keep talking about the play in just a moment, but if you'd like a short pitch on what this play is about, you should go to our website, expandthecanon.com, and you'll find this little blurb. (laughs) If you are looking for a farcical skewering of the aristocracy that evokes arrested development for the 18th century, consider this contemporary roast of old money values. The notable von Annenstolz family deigns to allow a bourgeois gentleman to marry their noble daughter, and pay off all their debts, of course. However, their daughter isn't sold, instead creating delicious chaos with her formerly affianced, and delicately, sort of, sticking it to the man. Dusty heraldry, fashionable hypochondria, and, of course, debt abound in this frothy class commentary that would elevate the tartuffe or imaginary invalid slot of any season. Oh, just a note for anybody who doesn't speak German, also me. Um, (laughs) Herr means Mr. and Frau means Miss, um, because we're big into family names on this one. We're not going to do first names, God forbid. Um, So just something to track as you go along. Why do you think this play is a classic, Emily? I think this play deserves to be a classic because, I mean, for a bunch of reasons. Mostly, I think class commentary is so frustratingly relevant these days and it does that in spades it does it really well it is so goofy so extra and also i think a lot of times you can get to a fluffy play and you're just like oh that was fun and had not a lot of teeth but weirdly like the fluff in this play is the commentary and i'm sort of fascinated by that it's very knives out in that sense Mm. I, i think that's very sexy right now the sort of like absurdity of massive wealth yeah i mean it's what we were saying with like those long bits and the characters being so self-absorbed it's like they these are people who have like no self-awareness and that's where the sort of humor in them comes from is like they say and do absurd things with no awareness of how absurd those things are and it's very funny (laughs) yeah and we've um, been drawing this like arrested development comparison too and i think in performance one thing that gets lost a little bit if you just read it is like who is the straight man in any given moment and like what mm. what moments are being shared there so i think there's also like i would love to see a performance of this play and see how much is just sort of like what is swallowed what is like sort of a the office take out to the audience moment what kind of group commentary can we get going 
on this totally goofball, utterly committed to the bit family that just is constantly just going after going after what they want because nothing else matters. And I think you have some really fun roles for women in this play as well. Um, the three sort of central female characters are all, I think, would be really fun to play mm. in very different ways. I mean, Frau von Annenstolz is just like, abs- like very like Mrs. Bennett vibe. Yeah. And very similar also to another play we have on this list, The Uncle. There's a similar character in that play. Hypochondria is sexy in German. You know, I don't know why, but it is. (laughs) And it's funny. So you have her, you have Amalia, who's the very sort of like Jim Halpert character a lot of the time. If we're (laughs) comparing this to The Office, of like she is the one who's like taking the looks out to the other. She messes with her family. There's a lot of stuff where she makes fun of them without them realizing or like does a bit that they're not in on. And it's very funny. And then honestly, Philippine is hysterically funny as well. Oh, yeah. Again, that thing of like being incredibly self-absorbed and like out of touch. We're not like endorsing her behavior or her, you know, romanticized infidelity, which is what it is. Mm. It is exciting to see a female character written in this time period who has that degree of agency over her sexuality. Again, it's not endorsing it. I think it's more just like she's mostly being torn down for the fact that she's being obnoxious to Willie Bald as opposed to like being torn down for daring to have a potential sexual relationship with a, a man. Yeah, it's no, there's no slut shaming in it whatsoever. Yeah, the joke isn't her sleeping around. The joke is that she's being a dick about it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which I really do appreciate, especially in a play of this time. And I think, you know, that sense of women's agency too, right? Like this all comes out of dissing a woman, right? Like the whole conflict is this woman felt like she deserved more respect and is it comical and excessive absolutely but she's really like her being respected is key element of the play um amalia has a lot of agency in terms of messing with her family steering willibald another way and also that sense of like the the unpredictable ending that we're not going to go with like and then we put a bow on it and everyone is happy now it's like no this is everyone's gonna walk away being the kind of gross person they were and we're not going to get married but thank you so much i think it's a really like the the conversation around agency while it's not like we're serving you a play about female agency is just so baked in to the story in a way that i i love yeah and as stated it's freaking funny it's a really funny play um and i think would be you know has that sort of moliere-esque room for like the really big sort of Canadian latsy like bits mm. in it. You could tear down a house with just the absurdity of it. And it's also like a quippy play. I think it would be very fast. I think it would be very funny. I think there's a lot of room for physical comedy in it. And I think it would just be like a really charming and delightful addition to, you know, a summer season or, you know, those winter months where you want something to just like warm people up with laughter. I think it would just slot so neatly into any season totally and it's such a nice counterpoint in you know in that it's a comedy that isn't deeply about like romance it is about love and marriage but it's not doing a romantic take on it whatsoever it's fun with a little bit of bite and that's the kind of stuff that i kind of really hardcore dig legacy what is this play about emily the mess alliance is a class comedy and it begins with a horrible insult. Frau von Annenstolz was terribly dissed by Frau von Zierfeld because she did not give up 
her chair. <gasps> yes. Devastating, painful, but clearly she deserved the most notable armchair in the room and was not <laughs> given up. Now she is deeply offended. So friend of the family, Ervon Wildholtz, has come to soften the blow of this tragic event because the children of von Annenstolz and von Zierfeld are engaged. And while Er von Annenstolz is receiving this attempt from von Wildholtz, basically he goes into the longest diatribe about heraldry, <laughs> maybe ever. Describing in depth just the coat of arms for several pages. Yeah, as if that somehow proves that I deserve this armchair because we we have twelve pig heads on our crest, and you're like, cool dude. But it's quite it's quite silly. It's that kind of like, well, self-importance is the name of the game here. And so then Frau von Annenstolz enters, and her sort of version of a very long explanation of why she is deserving and fancy is because she is deathly ill. She looks very healthy and probably is, um, but she loves the idea of her delicateness and her doctor that she employs uh, will also agree with her no matter how healthy and normal she looks. Because of her fragility, she also is not interested in hearing of a repair of the situation. And clearly, this fight will continue over the armchair. But it's not a problem. They've already solved it. Because rather than allowing their daughter to be engaged to von Zierfeld, They've instead engaged her to a bourgeois, and his name is Herr Willibald. Ooh. That's right, everyone, ooh, no. And it seems very strange that they will have promised their daughter to a bourgeois as they are ridiculously obsessed with class and heraldry and fanciness, fragility, blah. Um, but conveniently, as a rich merchant, uh, he's gonna pay all their debts. The differentiation in this play in class is between folks who might, who are like part of the monarchy, have titles, have titled land, which is the von Annenstolz, the Zierfelds, etc. And then the bourgeois who are like the new money, essentially, of this world. Mm. It's the people who are like, Er Willibald is a merchant, he's very wealthy, he's bought a lot of titled land, but he hasn't inherited it, and he is yeah. not himself titled. So that's the sort of separation, is the aristocracy and then the regular rich mm. people. Such a good note. Willbold actually seems smart and cool. Everyone who talks about him is like, actually, he's a pretty good guy. So ultimately, maybe it's a better plan than marrying their daughter, Philippine, off to von Zierfeld. Anyway. However... Philippine is not thrilled, but she's gonna go along with this plan. She's gonna do as she's told, mostly because she doesn't think she has to be faithful to someone in the bourgeois. So she's planning to keep hanging out with her formerly affianced boyfriend, fellow noble, Er von Zierfeld. And he comes by, and they do seem like a fitting match. It's kind of this slightly gossip girl's feel. <laughs> Um, of like these two rich people being like, eh, aren't I lovely? And just sort of blowing each other up. But von Zierfeld becomes worried about no longer being engaged, but Philippine tells him not to worry, it's okay. She's got a plan. She's gonna get Willibald to pay off all their debts, just like her parents said, and then she's going to drive Willibald away by being rude to him and obviously unfaithful with von Zierfeld. So it's all good. The key is just 
he can't be seen by her parents because of course the devastating armchair episode which is why they broke up so after von zierfeld and they plot willibald shows up to talk to philippine and he is doing his best he is flirting he's being gallant he's being generous he's flattering her he's everything you would want in a suitor and philippine just keeps being super cold to him again part of her plan and her mother frau von annenstolz is insulting his class at every turn and to his credit willibald is like taking it more or less in stride he like learns to never say someone looks healthy um it's a touchy <laughs> subject yeah avoiding health at all costs this is where a lot of the comedy in this play comes in. You know, the Frau von Anstolz and her husband saying things like, oh, in the aristocracy, you'd never take a lady by the hand while wearing a glove. You'd offer her a corner of your waistcoat. And you should never tell a, a member of the aristocracy that they look well because they'll tell you whether they're well or not. And you should always trust that how they feel over the doctor. So it's like all this like ridiculous stuff of like them saying that the rules of the aristocracy and like the basic ways that they exist in the world are just anatomically different um, and it's all absurd like it's all just these really absurd rules that Air Willibald is doing his best to be gracious towards but it's absurd totally absurd oh my gosh it's like like in improv and sketch writing they talk about um, heightening <laughs> it's just like constantly like heightening and heightening and heightening like how wackadoo can the aristocracy be? The answer is pretty wackadoo. <laughs> so Willibald has been enduring this nonsense to the best of his ability. And finally, Frau von Annenstolz's sister Amalia pulls Willibald aside. And she really warns him, look, this marriage is never going to go well. I think you're trying to get married to be happy, but you won't. They're never going to embrace you. They're always going to use you for your money. And they're always going to be rude and classist about it. Don't do this. Aren't there any nice bourgeois girls? Amalia is like, in terms of like everybody in this world being kind of, of this of the aristocracy being kind of insane, Amalia is like the chill one. Yeah. She's very practical. She's pretty nice to Willibald and is just clearly a little bit more cognizant of how absurd this world is that they're behaving mm. in. Um, we like Amalia. For sure. Voice of reason. Absolutely. Voice of reason. Which is also kind of one thing that Willbald says, too. He notes that she's much more reasonable and kind than other folks he's met in the von Annenstolz family. But yeah, for some reason, Willbald just has the whim to elevate himself through marriage. So he's going to keep trying, see his way through the best he can. Meanwhile, again, Philippine, Dr. Philippine has her plan, and von Zierfeld is now dressed, he's costumed, hidden as a gardener. He thinks he looks wonderful, but everyone else is like, you look like this commoner on other sorts of comedy. And again, he's in disguise so that her parents don't notice him. So many layers. But also, they've like planted the seed and like, tell, tell Willibald that I'm being wooed in the garden. So he comes and sees von Zierfeld kissing her hand. Scandal. And Philippine, I can't tell if it's intentional that she's a really bad actor slash liar, but it's very obvious that something is going on. She's caught. Willibald accuses her of being unfaithful, which is like legit. But also 
Philippine uses all her bag of tricks of like, well, a noble woman would never. <laughs> and the Von Annenstolzes come hearing about the commotion and give this comical long line of women who were like problematically chased through their family tree, which includes several women who died because they didn't want to have someone look at their leg. And one of them got gangrene and one of them had an artery cut uh, because she didn't want to take off her stocking. It's so ridiculous. It's my favorite part of this play. It's it's like a page of like, <laughs> and, and in 1372, Gertrude uh, didn't actually succeed in getting married because she was too demure to say I do to her husband <laughs> at the altar. It's so funny. It's just absurd. And it did, they just go on and on and on and on and on. Right. It's oh. very good. Oh, goodness. They kind of buy on buy into her side, but Willibald's still suspicious, understandably. So Philippine goes off, and the Von Annenstolzes say, don't worry, Willibald. Um, also, let us read you the marriage contract, which includes that you will pay all our debts forever, and thank you. In the meanwhile, like, <laughs> sneaking in all these insults in class in the written document. Because <laughs> what's better than legally insulting someone, too? Willibald is like, I mean, obviously Amalia was right that they're just going to use him for his money and he's getting a little tired of being constantly insulted, being forced to pay all this, although he's still kind of stomaching it at the moment, but, but it's on shaky ground. So Amalia comes back and she hears about this gardener story and she thinks there's something weird about it. So they go to investigate once again. Once again, Philippine is terrible at covering up. She garbles her way through some complete nonsense excuse, and they almost get away with it. But von Zierfeld has a copy of her portrait that falls out of his pocket. And God forbid you would ever give your portrait to some commoner. Ooh. Oh no, yes. And Amalia, who again establishes the one person that knows what the heck is going on in the world, has figured out the puzzle. It's von Zierfeld. He reveals himself and... Everyone's like, this is clearly a mess. You also get one of those great, hysteric, like, silly comedy reveal moments where it's like the person in disguise takes off their coat and everyone is like, oh my God, it's Von Zierville. Yes. Those always tickle me. Which is so good. But also then he's like, it is I. (laughs) Like, cool, bro. (laughs) You get both of the wonderful abs of that, like, totally bonkers reveal. Somehow, Zierfeld still wants to marry Philippine. They've been engaged forever. They're into it. They're a weird match that fits, despite their oddness. And at this point, Herr von Annenstolz would say yes, despite the armchair incident, but he'd still already promised Philippine to Willibald, and Willibald had already given them 10,000 Thaler for their marriage. But at this point, Willibald's like, you know what? You can keep it. I'm happy. I'll step away, keep that money, and I'll just get out of here. So everyone gets what they want, more or less, which is an interesting lesson, question mark. But our sort of final beat of the play is Willibald thanks Amalia for her guidance in steering him away from the mess alliance. And he asks if he could marry Amalia instead. She's clearly much more smart and reasonable and kind. But she says no, she is also part of the aristocracy and insists that it wouldn't work unless they move to Iceland or someplace that doesn't have the social structures that they do. And unfortunately she does not like the cold. And she warns him, get rid of your appetite for a noble wife. 
I love that ending. I love the thing of, and we're not going to shove together two random people who have said before that they it wouldn't work between them <laughs> and just have them get married to tie up the plot. Amalia is such a great character. She knows what she wants, says what she believes, and doesn't really budge. But it's, she's like nice and funny about it. And so, and you get the feeling that like Willabald clearly likes her. Yeah. But he'll be fine. It's not like a heartbreak moment. She's sort of seeing through his desire for, you know, a title and her being like, I recognize that you think this is a good idea for you, but it's not that good of idea and I don't want to be a part of it. So thanks, but no thanks. I wish you well. History. So Emily, we've talked a little bit about why we like this play, but what do we know about this amazing playwright? Yeah, we know a little less than I would like us to, but we do know that she's really, uh, Louise Gottsched is really considered the mother of modern German comedy. She was a deeply prolific writer, and she wrote poems, plays, essays, and did a ton of translation. So her body of work is actually, like, quite extensive, which is awesome. It's, it's so, like, I think she deserves to have much more scholarship about her because of that. And yet, unfortunately quite a lot of the scholarship, the biography, and the commentary around her work is deeply intertwined with that of her husband, which we'll get to in a second. Louise Gottsched grew up around the Polish court. Her father was a resident doctor there. She was near a lot of the aristocracy there, and she had two deeply educated parents. So her her father was a doctor, and her mother was French fluent and uh, took on educating her as well. So she's this incredibly smart young woman growing up in, I believe, which was called Prussia at the time. And she started writing poetry at 12 years old, which is pretty amazing. Ooh, yeah, smarty. And at 12 years old, or at least somewhere between 12 and 14, she sent some of her poetry to Johann Christoph Gottsched, who would later be her future husband. 12 is fairly early, you know? But he was, he was a professor of philosophy and he was also a literary editor and I think, you know, she was trying to get her work into some of these dailies, these journals that he was editing. And obviously he, he saw some quality there. So two years later, she's 14 and he is 27. He writes to ask her parents if they can correspond over letters. Always a, an interesting beginning of a, of a courtship. But they do. They, they correspond over letters and they meet in person two years later when she's 16 and he's 29. And they continue talking and corresponding and, and courting, I guess, for six more years. And apparently a lot of that exchange is much more like academic than romantic necessarily. Like he's sending her books, he's sending her things to translate. And there's a strong vibe of like colleagues. They clearly like talking about their work and like that's what connects them. It's how they got connected anyway. And they eventually marry in 1735 after both of her parents had died, which I think is kind of a fascinating little tidbit. Was she resisting marriage in general until she had to? I don't know. An interesting factoid. If anyone is a Louise Gottsched scholar and wants to flesh that out, let us know. The timeline of their relationship is very interesting. And then I read like, oh, they started corresponding when she's like 14. And I'm like, yikes. But I, although I'm also like, I, you know, I absolutely as a teenager, you know, would have like written letters to celebrities and stuff like that to oh be like, <laughs> hi, I wrote a poem. You know what I mean? Like there's something very like all sweet about that on her end of like, 
I wrote a poem. Please read my poem. Um, yeah. The generous read on it makes me want to be like, oh, it is nice of this like older professor to be like, oh, there's this precocious young child and I'm going to write back to them. And it is interesting to me that, you know, at the time that they were living, it would not have been societally weird for him to marry her when she was a teenager, but they don't get married right away, which again, yeah. is, to your point, is just interesting to note. I don't know what we can take away from that exactly, but it is notable. They get married in 1735, and apparently they have this understanding that until they had kids, she would, Louise would help Johann with his literary work. And they remained childless. So for many, many years, she is working on his projects, um, working on literary studies, and is deeply, obviously, you know, as she's prolific, doing a lot of work in terms of the literary world, the academic world, um, and the dramatic world. And because she's helping him, and I guess, you know, this is fairly traditional for the time as well, her work is bound up in his in many ways. And one of those is this project called the German stage. Apparently, like, at the time, a lot of what was being shown was operas from different countries. And so they really wanted to promote French plays and also original works. So this is one of the reasons that Louise ends up writing this play as well as a handful of others, The French Housekeeper and The Last Will, which we've read both of as well. Um, there is, she wrote one tragedy Panthea, which we don't have a copy of. So if you do, send it our way. Send it our way. <laughs> yeah. And her husband, Johann, was very into like dramatic unity and classical structure. So the Mess Alliance is a five act, even though it, it feels it doesn't have to be necessarily. And it's very much got French scenes. So you can see the, the sort of like French influence on where they were going. But to her credit, she got a lot of literary acclaim for her work. She was very appreciated at the time. And again, like mother of German comedy, people recognized, as did her husband, her quality, her intelligence, her, um, her shrewdness. She's also not just working on Johann's stuff. She's also like learning Latin and Greek and continued learning music for the rest of her life because um, she's smart. She's interested in life. <laughs> and so she also translated The Spectator, which was this very popular English daily journal um, in the 1700s that, you know, Ben Franklin and other notable folks were reading at the time. And one of the aims, I sort of love this, one of the aims of the periodical was to increase the number of women who were, quote, of a more elevated life and conversation. So I love that Louise was trying to spread the word on that kind of work and topic by translating it into German. I'd love to know, like, what was in that yeah. journal. It was daily journal for, like, three or four years. So there's quite a number of ones you could look up. But I, yeah, I don't know how publicly available it is. I, I saw at least one online. But yeah, like, was this, I mean, I, I appreciate that as the aim, but did it, did it really do that? <laughs> did it really support women as much as I hope that it did? I'm not sure. If you know, leave a comment and a review on our podcast. <laughs> um, or just email us. Louise Gottsched ended up with a large body of work. She was appreciated in her time. A lot of folks... I think at the time, but also certainly after that have noted that her contributions were more valuable perhaps than her husband's. And yet he, there's so much more scholarship on his life. Um, so would really encourage 
folks who who do research on history, on German folks, on playwrights, we need more research on Louise Gottschett that isn't just focused on her husband. Help us out. Do we know anything about her later life? No, she just wrote a lot. And then she and her husband got into a little bit of a tiff over some politics stuff in the theater that they were working on. Hmm. And then she died, unfortunately. Our lovely dramaturg, James Labelli, who helped us do a bunch of research on her background, writes, Gottschid would continue to write until physical impairment and a sense of bitterness at changing literary values fully impeded her. Hmm. She passed in 1762, leaving behind an indescribably extensive canon of translation, a number of influential plays, an effect on her own husband's work, which nearly, and by the accounts of some scholars, certainly exceeded his own. So shout out to James LaBella. (laughs) And now here is a recording from our filmed scene of The Mess Alliance, performed by Sarah Himes and Jory Murphy. First Philippine, I can't for the life of me understand why I have to disguise myself as a gardener in order to make Willibald jealous. It's not because of Willibald, but fear of my parents. You've heard me say ten times they don't want to catch sight of you. Oh, it's a delight to hear something a dozen times from such beautiful lips. The devil, Fräulein, do admire my cleverness. That was a compliment few suitors could recite to their fair lady. Unless perhaps Air Willibald could think of something equally clever to make you forget his distinguished parents. Oh, do be quiet about Willibald. Oh, but of course. By rights, the names of such suitors should be recited for the first time only at the wedding. Did you make our gardener aware that he should arouse all sorts of suspicions in Willibald concerning our love? Yes. Fairest heart, I believe that I have done everything you commanded. I'm very surprised. At what? I'm surprised that you are not admiring me. Truly, you are frivolity personified for not yet having said to me how well I look in my gardener's costume. Mm, I think you are already well aware enough of that without me. But I would like to have some proof that you too are clever enough to see it. I would like to hear that you regard yourself as fortunate to admire a suitor upon whom all manner of clothing looks so splendid. Since you are already so aware of that, I don't need to tell you. And from whom not even the lowliest article of clothing can rob a certain je ne sais quoi, which distinguishes him from all fashionable people, and which wins love and affection for him. Surely, no one has ever perceived your advantages as well as you do yourself, Herr von Siegfeld. Well, because you concede me that, I'm going to tell you something quite splendid. What? Pray tell. I'll show you that you can't resist me at all, (gasps) and that you would have to love me, even if I were Willibald himself, and all my forebears had done nothing but sell kindling and kitchen matches. (laughs) And how would you do that? Let me worry about that. You shall see how great a force inner qualities exert upon a fair heart. But if Willibald hasn't the good sense which I possess, I can't do anything about that. (laughs) That's obvious. Where would he find that? One has to be born with it. That's precisely my good fortune. (laughs) Believe me, if I hadn't been born with good sense, my soul, (laughs) I don't know where I would have gotten any.
This was directed by Emily Lyon, and special thanks as well to director of photography Jenny Desrosiers, sound designer Stephanie Coriatis, and production stage manager Jessica Fournier. And we want to give a shout out to Daniel Alcapara for editing this episode. Thank you for joining us for this edition of This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon Theater Podcast. Learn more at expandthecanon.com. If you believe in the importance of expanding the canon, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to this podcast. And then hit that share button and forward it along to a friend, a colleague, a professor, anyone in your life who's into heraldry. And for info on what's up next, you can follow us on Instagram. At Hedgepig Ensemble Theater. Facebook. Slash Hedgepig Ensemble Theater. Or join our mailing list at hedgepigensemble.org. You can also support this effort by donation at the link in the comments below. Again, I'm Emily Lyon. And I'm Sky Pagan. Thanks so much. See you next time. Stay healthy. Whoa. <laughs>